Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Blokeology, Evidence-Based Life and Healthy Skepticism. Okay, so on this episode, I am incredibly lucky to have Dr. Alice Howarth. And now Alice is a clinical and molecular pharmacologist based in Liverpool, works at Liverpool University, but she's heavily involved and obviously a key member of Merseyside Skeptic Society. Uh, she's one of the co-hosts of the excellent Skeptics with a K podcast. Uh, she knows all about cancer, all about cell biology, uh, and she takes us through a lot of the myths uh, about cancer, about treatments and about finding a cure for cancer. A little bit more about that in just a second. I hope you've all had a really fantastic summer. Uh, I'm just getting back to it myself now after a summer break and uh, the new academic term is now upon us at the medical school. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe. Send me some. Um, send me an email. Send it to blokeology at ewanlawson.com. I'd be delighted to hear from you. Any feedback is incredibly welcome. Um, sign up for the newsletter if you like. I send that out every other Friday. You can find that at blokeology.io. But more than anything, I hope you um, are just enjoying the podcasts and getting something useful out of them. I'm really loving delving into these different areas, sort of applying a sceptical, healthy sceptical uh, approach to these topics uh, and just learning a little bit more about um, an incredible number of niches which change how we go about living our lives. Um, so back to Alice. So Alice has uh, given this talk about cancer and the cures and how we go about finding a cure for cancer, which she's got quite strong feelings that actually the whole concept about a cure for cancer is a problem and a challenge when you actually understand the disease. Uh, she's given this talk innumerable times to various skeptics societies around um, the country. Um, I have tried in the links section to add lots of the links that she's talked about, the cancer research articles, uh, the links to the um, skeptic societies, the links to the uh, uh, the podcasts there as well. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Um, it was really fantastic speaking to her. So the first thing I asked her was just to tell us a little bit more about her work as a clinical and molecular pharmacologist. I work in, I, I like to say I work in cancer research. I haven't worked in cancer research for about a year now. I've just switched over to um, clinical and molecular pharmacology. Um, but my background is cell biology. I'm a kind of bench researcher. Um, I'm very interested in how cells work, what they do. Um, different ways that cells interact with each other. And I still do a lot of that in my day-to-day -day job now, um, do a lot of work with cells, which is not necessarily the most fun thing in the world because you have to come in when your cells need them, which means I work a lot of evenings and weekends. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so the kind of the whole period of my academic career has been working with um, different types of human cells um, in the lab um, and then applying different things to that. So my current job is um, working with uh, pharmaceutical medicines and um, things that we can treat cells with and see what happens. In my case, I'm looking at how those cells move around the body. So I'm using different types of cells that mimic different barriers in the body. So I've got a set of um, blood vessel cells that I can grow into a nice barrier monolayer, and then I can put drugs on one side of that barrier and see how long it takes for those drugs to get to the other side of the barrier and things like that. 
Um, so it's quite a cool and varied job, but it's um, it's also very finicky because working with cells is much like you should never work with kids or animals. Working with cells is is kind of the that, other one. Is that the biological equivalent? <laughs> The biomed so, science equivalent is never work with cells. Never work with cells. Um, some cells are better behaved than others. Um, uh, and we, I do find myself talking to my cells quite a lot, looking down the microscope and telling them, you're very happy today. Um, <laughs> I, so I guess the most interesting cells from that perspective must be, you mentioned that, you know, as cancer research, but cancer cells, they must be, you know, they're the kind of the really fascinating weirdos of the cell world. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I predominantly use cancer cells. And a, a big reason for using cancer cells in the lab is because they grow really, really well. Mm. Um, so historically, it took us m- many years, many decades of trying to get cells to grow in the lab outside of the human body. And one of the first ones we managed to do, HeLa cells, were derived from a, a woman, uh, Henrietta Lacks, who had severe cervical cancer. Her cells were taken and there's a whole interesting ethical story about how those cells were taken in in a very unethical way um but they were kind of grown in labs and are now used in labs across the world still many decades um later because they grow like stink um that then they never stop growing they also never stop mutating which means although they're great models for lots of things um, because they're cancer cells they acquire new mutations all the time and they actually look nothing like cells that would um, actually exist in the human body anymore because they've they've acquired so many different mutations so they have their, their kind of limitations but they're very very useful for that and we can use different types of cancer cells derived from patients with different types of cancers to understand exactly what's happening in a model of that form of cancer without having to look in patients or animals yeah. yeah, so that's really interesting because you've. I hadn't thought of cancer cells like that continuous mutation because you, you obviously you think about getting cancer and you think, well, there's been a mutation in a cell, it turns into a cancerous cell, malignant one, and then it grows. But they they keep on mutating, so they just keep on doing yeah. this craziness as well. So that that you know you could end up with something really they're, they're really. But so I, I don't know if that happens in clinical practice as well. That all those cancer cells they don't look they're completely different as well. They'll vary from individual to individual. Well, yeah, and this is the the mo- one of the most fascinating things about cancer and kind of the reason that I'm interested in talking about cancer with people from lay backgrounds is that I think we have a fundamental misunderstanding of how cancer works in the body and understanding how it works in cells can then allow us to understand how it works in the body. So, yes, we know that in patients with tumours, they will have lots, even within that one individual patient, each tumor cell might look slightly different. They might have a different set of mutations and we have to try and figure out, you know, one tumor can have up to three, 400 mutations just within that tumor. And we have to figure out which is the mutation that's actually driving this cancer, which are the the few important ones that are allowing these cells to grow out of control and grow into this metastatic tumor, this cancer mass. Um, and that's, you know, incredibly complicated because there might be hundreds of mutations. Yeah. And as you say, a lot of those mutations, presumably, they don't matter. A monk, you know, they don't matter at all. They're not going to do you any yeah. harm. They, they, don't create, they don't cause the, the, these cells to grow. They're not going to do you any damage. So working out which of those mutations out of that whole kind of array of yeah. them is is obviously a crucial bit of finding the treatments that work. Exactly. And it might it might only be 
one mutation, one single mutation that is actually driving that cancer forwards. And if that's the case, then we can use a treatment that targets that one single protein that is mutated. And we can talk a bit more about kind of how, how mutations in genes turn into problems with proteins. But um, fundamentally, if if there's a problem with a protein and we know that that's the protein that's causing the cancer, we can then say, okay, we can we can treat that protein. We can use a drug against that protein. Gosh. Oh, well, that, that's already really fascinating. So that, would you say that's the typical kind of work of a clinical and molecular pharmacology? Because I guess, I mean, I, you've got a big interest in talking about, you know, communication of science. Most people would, clinical and molecular pharmacology, wouldn't have much of a clue what that is. You're clearly yeah. very much interested in this kind of cell side of things. What, yes. what kind of, uh, would that be a fair description of, you, you've just said, you, and you mentioned you just recently gone into that pharmacology side. Yeah. Having, what is that? What a typical clinical molecular pharmacologist would do, or is there an enormous array of? I uh, think spectrum? that there's this huge, wide variation. So the people within my group, I am one of the few that's doing a lot of cell-based stuff. We do do a lot of cell-based stuff, um, but it's not kind of the bread and butter of every person in my group. So my particular group that I work in. Um, has a few fingers in a few different pies. One of the biggest things that is valuable to our group is a thing called uh, pharmacological modeling, mathematical modeling that we use. Mm -hmm. So we do physiologically based pharmacokinetic modeling where we look at using data, either data from the clinic, so clinical trials that have been done on specific drugs or data from things that I'm doing using cells or things that have been done in animal models, and we take all of the information that we can gather on one particular drug, put it into a mathematical model, and create this virtual human body um, where you can see what's happening as the drug passes through different organs within the body. So, a big part of our group um, spends a lot of time looking just at numbers and putting them into these virtual humans to see what happens. And then we can use that to look at vulnerable populations, so um, pregnant women, neonates, people who you would never want to put those drugs into early in clinical trials, and we can start to try and understand how those drugs might behave in those vulnerable populations. Yeah. Gosh, so that's kind mm -hmm. of one element of what my group does, but then we also do a lot of work on how different drugs interact. So it, will, it, it might be things based in cells, but it might be things based just chemically in tubes we see how different drugs are interacting with each other we might use um, cells derived from human patients that are not cancerous cells in any way that are just normal for example liver cells and see if we put this drug in these normal human liver cells how does the drug break down because the human liver breaks metabolizes breaks down drugs and we can see how the drug breaks down in that and how which different metabolites are going to be available to the body does it mean that actually that drug's just going to get cleared from the body immediately and it's not actually going to have any chance to do anything good for the body? Um, yeah, there's kind of this massive broad spectrum of stuff um, <laughs> that we look at. Yeah, it is enormous. I mean, in pharmacology, I guess, is anything to do with medications, drugs, isn't it? That's So you, exactly. it's an enormous yeah. field. But so mostly cancer. So one of the things I, I'm going to come back to, the, we'll come back to the cancer in a minute, but talk a little bit about scepticism for a minute because that's obviously a big yeah. part of what you do in the communication of science what, yes. what what got you into being a kind of a prominent active science communicator particularly with this skeptic angle um so i've 
kind of always just been interested in how things work. I kind of, that's how I got into science. But then kind of as I was getting into my kind of probably late teens, university days, I started to be really interested in why people believe what they believe. Um, I went to a church school growing up. I was exposed to a lot of gentle religion, Anglican (laughs) church, but I was kind of exposed to a lot of that. And then as I'm starting to get more interested in science and how things work, starting to think about whether that's compatible with some of the faith-based views that I'd been exposed to growing up. Um, And ultimately, I kind of started questioning things, questioning whether things people were telling me was true Um, and, and what it was based on. Was it based in evidence? So I started kind of reading all sorts of material on things like that. I read Richard Dawkins' God Delusion. Um, I started listening to lots of podcasts. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe in particular was one of my favorites at the time. Um, And then I came across Skeptics with a K, which is the podcast I now Mm -hmm. co-host. And I I listened to that for a little while before I realized these guys are based in Merseyside. They're doing events. They're doing talks every month. Um, I'll go along and see what's happening. So I basically just rocked up at the Mosai Skeptic Society events. Um, they have been now running officially. They've been running for 10 years. We had our 10-year birthday <laughs> celebration um, earlier this year. And I kind of just started going to the talks that they host. We host um, one talk a month. Um, they do socials once a month. And started chatting to people and thinking, you know, these are my people. These are people who ask questions about the about stuff who just want to understand how things work and and think critically about claims that people make particularly claims that are made in the media for example and so I started kind of socializing with those and getting more and more involved and then ultimately somehow ended up getting involved in some of the activism that they were doing um getting involved in I now co-run the group and have done for for maybe six or seven years um so I'm involved in the day-to-day running of the group and then eventually when um one of the co-hosts of Skeptics with a K left to have a baby they invited me onto the podcast and I've been doing that for probably close to five years now gosh um so it kind of it kind of just unraveled I kind of started going to stuff and then getting more and more involved in it you know you find something that you're passionate about and you want to get involved and then I started going to a lot of different. So one of the things that we are quite keen to do is to not assume that people who believe in things that don't have evidence for them. So, for example, one of my pet topics is alternative medicine and pseudoscientific um, therapies. One of the things we try to do is to not assume that those people are either, you know, stupid or or you see a lot of people saying that you're part of a cult or, you know, kind of all sorts of very negative, almost derogatory ideas about people who believe in those things. I used to work with somebody who talked about it as if it was natural selection. Well, if people choose to do that and it's, we kind of think, well, let's try and understand why people believe these things. So we go along and see talks by people claiming to sell alternative therapies and claiming that alternative therapies will treat or cure cancer and try and interact in those worlds and the more I do that the more I realize that actually a big part of the problem is we as scientists and academics are failing at communicating how science works and and so people are left thinking well it's this big shadowy 
um, ivory tower where they're kind of holding science away from us. And then there's these alternative medicine practitioners who are talking to them about how cancer really works. And that's kind of how my, I, I sh started shaping my talk was trying to say, we need to understand how cancer works and we all need to understand how cancer works because that shouldn't be just the purview of, of academics sat in universities. Every, this affects everybody pretty much in their lifetime. We should be communicating this better to people from all backgrounds. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's a number of things I want to pick up there. The first thing I'd say is I was just watching the telly this week and they've got this Stand Up to Cancer program about swimming the channel, I think which um, my wife has been watching particularly interestedly because she um, she swam the channel in a team a few years ago. And so it's been particularly interesting. But they, they say always like one in two people will get cancer yeah. in their lifetime. And crikey, if one in two people are getting cancer in their lifetime, then you would think that this is something we should be educating people, your yeah. children about. Oh, never mind adults. Yeah. We've obviously got all the adults it, to catch up with. But it should be a core yeah. part of something that everybody knows about all the time, shouldn't it? So there's a it, kind of... It will affect... Hmm every person's life at some point in some way even if you're not one of the one in two who will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in your lifetime you'll you, you know more than two people you're gonna know somebody who is diagnosed <laughs> with cancer at their lifetime yeah you'd be doing um, well statistically not to meet anyone in that regard you're highly unlikely <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely and I, so I, it's just that as you say it's just a massive massive problem and the other thing that i wanted to pick up there was that I was kind of involved in the skeptic community back in about 2005, six, really, when I started blogging and spent a lot of time kind of kicking alternative medicine a little bit. And something I became aware of was that, um, I did that for a few years, not terribly long, because it, I was just got really uncomfortable with how highly polarized it was and, yeah. and how unpleasant the discussions were and the tone of some of the skeptics on Twitter or other places who were, and yeah. exactly as you described, were ferociously unpleasant and damning of people that held different views. And so I kind of stepped right away from it. And I've kind of come back to it much more with a kind of an approach where I want to get involved with this, but actually I'm prepared to... Um, I'd be much, I think it's a much better approach to listen to people. Um, yes. And, and I think not to be derogatory, as you say. I think one of the really interesting things about skepticism in the UK is that it has grown a lot in the last 10 years or so. So I've been attending events in nine years, in for the last nine years. Um, and I've done, did exactly the same thing. I was involved in, you know, watching these conversations happening on Twitter, Facebook, all of the kind of social media places where you see these very aggressive arguments happen. And they still happen. They absolutely still happen. Um, but it's almost, we're, I almost think of it like a sceptical adolescence that people find scepticism <laughs> and they get really passionate about it. They get really excited about it. They get really angry about it and they go off looking for people to argue with. <laughs> and then given a few years, they sort of settle down a bit and they grow up a bit and they realize that actually a productive way to have these conversations is to be kind and empathetic and to understand why people might believe that. Telling someone they're wrong is never going to change somebody's mind. Um, and so having these conversations where you actually listen to what a person is telling you are more productive. And I think we're moving in that direction in skepticism, certainly in the UK now, um, but yeah, we, we've we've had a bit of a bad rap in the past for being a little bit overly aggressive. 
I, I think you're right. It's interesting though because you look at the evidence and just telling somebody they're wrong, all the psychological evidence would tell you that isn't going to work in a million years and we'll just entrench positions anyway. But you yeah. do. I think you do have to genuinely listen. And I think that it came to me quite quickly because there was an immediate conflict between clinical practice and skepticism as as, pra yeah. as practice that way because you, it's all very well me and I was really bad for having to go at acupuncture and having to go at homeopathy and all that sort of side of things mm -hmm. but actually then there were people who'd come in and consult with you who were having acupuncture and you know occasionally homeopathy though that's relatively uncommon but acupuncture yeah. was really quite mainstream um, you know at yeah. that point and you just couldn't have the same conversations with them it's, you have to completely change your, no, and, your, and your tone every individual has a right to choose that the, the the therapies that they choose to undertake that should be an informed choice I would argue sometimes that the choice isn't very well informed hopefully if they're actually coming in to see their medical practitioners then you you're able to reach them a little bit with something more evidence-based but I've I've come across patients when I've been to attend talks from alternative practitioners who who have isolated themselves entirely from from conventional medicine and are, are encouraged to um to isolate themselves from medical um conventional medical treatment because they're told that the medical practitioners are all lying to them they're all looking for um ways to make money um various things about um the, the cancer industry or big pharma being this shadowy organization that wants to suppress cures and treatments um and and those are the situations when it doesn't seem to be a very informed choice um but by that point you're probably not interacting them with them in the clinic either yeah yeah. And certainly, I think that's right. And we have to be careful as well that it's not necessarily about, and you're absolutely, you've hit it on the nail on the head there as well, but it's not about persuading people of our view either. It's about making sure they are they're in the right position of being informed to make their own choices. Because people yeah. might have all that information and they could still choose to have acupuncture or homeopathy. Yeah. And it would be a mistake to try and um, tell them they can't do that. It, we, we, you have to just let people make sure they've got the right information. The, the conspiracy theory thing is really interesting. And I had a um, uh, um, a chap on recently who was um, talking about conspiracy theories. Um, and the big farmer is obviously very prone to that. And then cancer is another one, isn't it? That, you know, that it's just all, yeah. there's an industry-wide, you know, big farmer, it's in big farmer's in, interests to not find a cure for cancer, for example. Which is, I find a remarkable point of view because of course it's in it's it's in pharma pharmaceutical industries benefit for patients to survive because the longer you live the more diseases you have the more <laughs> the more money you sell on drugs for for diseases of old age so I, I've never quite understood how big pharma wants you to die of cancer is is a logical um viewpoints but it is a viewpoint that a lot of people hold mm. um there are a lot of ideas that that people within within even within my field are suppressing the cure um as if we all know about this cure and we're all choosing to let our loved ones die of cancer because it's for the greater good of the pharmaceutical companies that are paying us buttons um yeah 
I mean, I mean, and I'm not one to defend the pharmaceutical industry. They have some appalling practices, and they've there got are some massive issues. They've, yeah. got some, they've got they've got a seriously checkered record. And you've only got to read the um, like Peter Gertz's book. Uh, they're, just, they're horrific in many ways. But I don't. I, but conspiracy theories are really interesting. So like it was Dan Jolly. My mind had gone blank. Who was on the podcast recently talking about conspiracy mm-hmm. theories? And they're a really interesting kind of group to to engage with. Which, speaking of which, actually, I know there's another one of your co-hosts. Is it um, Michael yeah. Marshall? He, um, yeah. he he has a really interesting podcast, doesn't he? Because he actually spends his time speaking to people who have views yes. completely contrary, and then just engaging with them. Yes, and it's it's a fascinating podcast. So the podcast um, Marsh hosts is called Be Reasonable. Yeah, um, and he speaks monthly to somebody who holds quite usually quite extreme beliefs so these aren't the things that you kind of come across day to day very often um but they're quite extreme beliefs he's talked to people who believe in the flat earth the hollow earth um he's spoken to people who picket abortion clinics um you know Mm. people with very extreme beliefs often um and he manages to keep a level of patience that I have never seen anybody be able to do quite as well as he does he will keep calm and have calm conversations with people who are sometimes have innocent views that are very extreme and bizarre but quite harmless but some you know he's spoken to people who are potentially going to cause a lot of harm for a lot of people by trying to sell claims um that for example bleach will cure autism drinking bleach and that you know that is a dangerous view and he kind of tries to get to the bottom of why the person believes that knowing that no one listening to this podcast is going to be swayed by these beliefs he can just keep asking questions and try to understand the the thought process behind it yeah yeah Gosh, well, I I I have enormous um, admiration for how he manages to go about doing it, and and the skeptics with the K is great as well because you do approach a lot of subjects with very, you know, uh, with the the exact the attitude you describe. Um, so one thing I should ask, we should get onto cancer. So tell us, obviously, one of your, the main things that I know that you've looked into particularly are cancer cures and cancer treatments. Um, and I guess the first thing to ask yes. is, what, is, is there any kind of really, and I know that you've written in the past as well about sort of cancer myths. Is, is there particularly any, you know, headline myths or things that people really get wrong about cancer cures and um, that we perhaps worth addressing first? There are a lot. Um, and you can kind of split it into two camps here. You can go the big alternative medicine pseudoscientific claim myths of which there are a handful that are really prevalent that everybody everybody believes there must be something in it even at talks i give around skeptics in the pub groups these questions come up time and time again the big one is cannabis everybody thinks cannabis will cure cancer um (laughs) it comes up every time i give this talk and part of it is because it's cannabis so people are interested in it but um (laughs) <laughs> cannabis won't cure cancer I, <laughs> I kind of I always feel like I'm when I when I give uh, talks about cancer and people ask about can, uh, cannabis I always feel like I'm then selling cannabis to them as a as a wonder drug because it does have value to patients um who who are suff- who you know who are living with cancer it it's a great painkiller it helps for cancer associated pain it helps for cancer associated and chemotherapy associated nausea um, it can have benefit for the side effects, both of the cancer and of the treatment, but there is just not 
anywhere near enough evidence that says that it will that it will treat cancer and that comes up a lot um the other big one that comes up a lot at the minute is turmeric yeah people are convinced that will will cure cancer um again there's 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 some evidence that if you put turmeric on um, cancer cells in the lab, then the, those cancer cells will die. Um, but there are lots of things you can put on cancer cells in the lab and kill them. And that doesn't mean that it works. In if I just pour water on my cancer cells in the lab, they're going to die. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you'd be, I suspect you're, you're the ideal person to ask what will kill your cancer cells as <laughs> in a lab, as you probably had a frust- yeah. frustrating experiences with them dying off. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's hard to keep them alive, let alone <laughs> find things to kill them. So, um, so th- those are the two big ones that come up. Uh, the other big one that comes up a lot in terms of alternative medicine is diet. Mm. Diet. People are convinced that diet will cure cancer. Um, the big, big, big one is sugar, mm-hmm. because a lot of alternative. Um, medicine proponents will talk about uh, a very real scientific principle of cancer that that cancer cells metabolize energy in a slightly different way to normal human cells. And so they have a slightly higher dependency on sugar than normal cells. Um, That doesn't mean removing sugar from your diet will starve the cancer because you also have sources of sugar in your body. Your body can generate its own sugar sources if it needs to. And if a cancer cell wants it, then it's going to find a way to get it. Um, but a lot of people will believe that that cutting sugar from your diet will starve the cancer, um, which just makes for, for, you know, you've got cancer and you're cutting cake and chocolate from your diet, like how to be completely miserable. <laughs> it's, it's uh, life, life's hard enough. you got cancer. <laughs> it's really it's tough, isn't it? And it won't do anything. It, you know, uh, one thing that's quite interesting is when I speak to or, or attend talks um, from alternative practitioners, one thing I see patients talk about time and time again, especially when it comes to diet, is that um, their doctor told them they could eat anything they wanted that there is nothing they can do to their diet to help their cancer and that that just isn't true and therefore everything the doctor tells them is wrong. Mm-hmm. Which I feel frustrated on behalf of doctors because most of the time doctors are telling them that diet will do absolutely nothing because the patient's presenting with a lack of appetite, nausea, um, no desire to eat anything and the doctor's saying, yes, eating healthily might be helpful, but you're not eating anything at the minute just eat if what you fancy is pizza eat pizza yeah but you just need the calories calories is more important than healthy food if if you're eating if you're eating is fine yes eating healthily keeping a health it all of these things are good for your prognosis and are good for cancer prevention and, and everything else but if you're struggling to eat calories just anything you can eat that's important um yeah, I think that's exactly the kind of advice you would give if someone's for whatever illness they've got, whether it's cancer or something else, and they're not eating, they're getting, you, you know, you're, you, this is not the time to worry about how much saturated fat is in your diet. You just got, if you fancy that, or you think you can get that down and keep it down, then you, you damn well eat it. Then yeah. It'll be fine. That's kind of, and that's just getting misinterpreted, isn't it? Um, it is. And, and then 
patients use it to say, well, the doctors are wrong because the doctors are telling me that my diet isn't important and the doctor's just prioritizing which is the important thing right now. Yeah. So uh, superfoods is often something associated with cancer, isn't it? Yeah, they pop up and they come in and out of fashion. Um, so we get a few things that pop up for a while. Um What's interesting as well when it comes to diet and cancer is that we do know that diet is important in the development of cancer. Certain foods increase your risk of cancer. Certain foods might be, we don't have quite enough evidence, but might be preventative for cancer. Um, And we often oversell that. I don't know if you saw in the media a few, would have been a few years ago now, um, all the bacon will cause cancer headlines um, that insisted that bacon was as bad for you as smoking because because the World Health Organization said so. (laughs) Yeah, I have seen that, yes. Um, (laughs) And have talked about it. I think the interesting thing about that is it it is oversold because I think there's quite, so we could argue about this, but I think there's quite quite compelling evidence that if you look at across population terms, certain processed meats do increase your risk of cancer. But the the problem is when that's all relative risk and when you you look at absolute risk in the individual, it is really just having an absolute, the, the individual effect is almost invisible. Exactly. Um, and this is the really interesting thing is I've, I was quite frustrated at the time that that news came out because loads of people, loads of listeners to the podcast wrote to me and said, can you talk about this? And having studied this stuff at university many years, like a, a good few years before, I was a bit frustrated it was news because I was like, we've known for years that, that uh, <laughs> smoked meats and particular types of processed meats increase your risk of cancer. We've known that. For a very long time, the reason it made the news was because the World Health Organization finally added it to a classification that said, yes, we know this causes cancer. Just like we know that smoking cigarettes cause cancer and and various other things. The next classification down is the things in this classification probably cause cancer. So the, the actual classification doesn't say how much it causes cancer. It just says it definitely can. Um but says nothing at all about how likely it is to do that. And yeah, it it turns out for most people, yeah, try not to eat too much smoked meat, try not to eat too much processed meat, try not to eat too much red meat, but there's no point getting too worried about it because the increased risk for the individual person is is minimal. Yeah, it's minuscule, isn't it? But And I think, you know, it, it matters to sort of, I guess it matters to policymakers or a wider public health message about what is a probably a sensible diet to be tilting at um, yeah but as from an individual basis if you're the kind of person who's choking down a bacon you know bacon for every meal well you might want to have a word with yourself and there's all sorts yeah. of other impacts that could have on you as well you well know? and far more far far more important than red meat and smoked meat and processed meat is is keeping a healthy weight we know that yeah. keep, you know, we know that obesity increases um your risk of cancer we shouldn't be telling people people um you see some when it comes to weight there are some awful ways of talking about how Mm. increased body weight increases your risk of cancer and that could be done far more sensitively but we do know that increased body weight um does increase your risk of cancers if you're eating bacon constantly 
you might also have an increased body weight and that might be the problem. And it's not, you know, and it's a very salty food. You're almost certainly like, we all have far too much salt in our diets. Anyway, most probably, again, yeah. on population basis, that actually it's not a great way. You know, you, it may, it's, that increases your risk of higher blood pressure, could ink other problems. The, um, the, the weight one's an interesting one because obviously that was, it was a Cancer Research UK was that yeah. Cancer Research UK that recently had the billboards saying... They've done two big advertising yeah. campaigns in the last couple of years, and they've had a lot of flack for both of them. Mm. Um, and I think I think rightly so, um, personally. I have a lot of time for Cancer Research UK. I think they do some fantastic work in terms of awareness for cancer research and for how cancer works. They have some amazing infographics for a lay audience that really explain like complex statistics and how cancer works. They're really great at, at communicating cancer stuff, various different things. Um, I think they got it wrong with the obesity adverts um, and it's, they ran yeah. them again the following year without having learned their lessons from that despite the backlash <laughs> i i and i'm inclined to agree I, there is an argument the counter argument is it's better that people know isn't it it's an education one that yeah. if people understand but it, the problem is it's uh, uh, that in itself isn't enough because if it actually stigmatizes and creates problems with people you know actually making changes to their life then you're yeah. uh, then then it's massively more damaging than people you know than the, 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 the apparent information gap just like telling somebody they're wrong isn't going to make them change their mind. Telling somebody they're fat isn't going, telling them that, yeah. A, telling them that they're fat and B, telling them that they are going to get cancer because of that isn't going to make them make healthy changes to their, their lives. Um, and, you know, it's all, it's all relative risk. We all choose to take the risks that we take every day. You know, none of us are perfect when it comes to the things that we know cause cancer plenty of us smoke most of us drink um that's increases your risk of cancer dramatically mm. most of us sit in the sun all day when the sun's shining and are <laughs> far too lazy about putting sunscreen on like we all do things every day that increase our risk of cancer and yes obesity is one thing that increases our risk of cancer but we have to recognize that there's so much stigma around that topic that we just if we're going to talk about it we have have a responsibility to talk about it carefully yeah and it's a shame because as you say they do some incredible work and i know that one link i was going to put on the show notes was for the um that you recommended on your blog was the 10 persistent cancer myths debunked yes. article they have which is really brilliant and i was just looking at it it's again great yeah it's got some fantastic yeah. stuff on there incredibly valuable um and you know going into quite a lot of detail but very accessible yeah they're, they're great at writing things that just pitch it at that right level i think um and and uh, fun, that that article must be a good few years old now but i still go back to it regularly because i think it's it's such a great article and, and very very accessible the sugar myths one is on there um for example one thing so going back to myths one thing that for me is a persistent sort of myth that is less to do with alternative medicine and more to do and it's it's a debate that we could have for hours i think is how we talk about cancer treatment goals mm -hmm. um and and people have different views on how to go about this i know cancer research uk in particular do like to use the word cure i hate to use the word cure i don't think telling people that the goal is to cure all forms of cancer is helpful when it comes to cancer uh, 
enabling people to understand how cancer works because I think it's a completely unrealistic goal and the first question anybody ever asks me when I talk to them about cancer is how close are we to curing it are we going to cure it when will we cure it um and we wonder why people are then pushed towards alternative practitioners who are telling them that they have the cure when we're constantly telling them the the cure's right around the corner we're nearly there we're we're just figuring out the cure and then we'll have the cure to all cancers and cancer will never be a problem again it's unrealistic at best and at worst it pushes people towards people who claim they do have that magic bullet cure yeah well that's interesting i don't think that was the first question i asked i was worrying now that was what i But you're right i hadn't thought of it in those terms because you're right it does set up that expectation which is then you know an absolute invitation to people who come forward and say they've got the cure um yeah. it, it just makes alternative medicine and the slightly more wackier end of kind of non-evidence-based options it just gives them credibility or at least exactly. it kind of it feeds that you know inherent where there's got to be something there has to be something out there yeah yeah and 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 it would be great if there was a cure, but by saying we will have the cure to cancer, we're saying multiple things. We're saying, A, there is a single cure, which there just won't be, but B, that cancer is a single problem. Mm. So I spend a big chunk of the talk that I give about cancer explaining why that's not the case, um, explaining that you know the human body is made up of multiple different organs, which are made up of multiple different types of cells. You know, we've got thirty-seven point two trillion cells in the human body, um, all doing different things, all slightly different in slightly different ways. Which means that if one of them starts to grow out of control and form a tumor, that tumor in your kidney is completely different to a tumor in your lung because lung cells and kidney cells are totally different types of cells um which means we've got hundreds of different types of cancer all all behaving slightly differently sometimes they have things in common with each other based on specific proteins that we know commonly go wrong in different types of cancer but more often than not each tumor is totally different to every other tumor and treating it as this big single disease means people think there's going to be this single cure for this single problem and it's it's not it's hundreds of diseases that are all slightly different yeah 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 and certainly clinically we're very you know you all the different options that exist and it's impossible to sticking them all in one bucket is a problem and i guess that's even the one and two people will have cancer kind of message that we were talking about is that it just it reinforces that and you know cancer research uk and all the rest of them are very happy to push that because they you know it just makes people reach into their pockets because they think it's only a matter of time before they're affected but it just it reinforces that um misconception yeah Absolutely. And it, and then it also, it, it contributes to people finding the C word as scary as they do, because, you know, cancer is as bad as cancer can ever get. You know, you talk to somebody about a diagnosis with cancer and their minds will automatically go to some of the worst forms of cancer. And actually, there's some forms of cancer that we have 98% 10-year survival rates because we're good at catching it early and the treatment is so brilliant that we virtually cure it for that patient. And they never relapse, and it's it's totally fine. Yeah, it is but done and dusted, patients, yeah. 
patients don't recognize, you know, you say that word to them and they shut down, understandably, because we've made it this big, terrifying thing. And because for a long time it was this big, terrifying thing. But since we've made such good progress and we're much better understanding the the prognosis of different types of cancer, actually, that shutting down thing isn't very productive for patients. And then that's when they're more likely to panic and go, okay, what options are there? This person says that if I take juices every single hour and do five coffee enemas a day, then I'm going to get better. So I'm going to try that. Yeah. That's probably a good place to just kind of finish off talking about cancer is that although we're unlikely to ever find a cure for all cancers, that's never going to, that's almost certainly never going to happen, at least not in multiple, multiple generations. Yeah. The, um, there are enormous advances in treatment that have happened. Huge advances. Um, we've we've made some amazing progress, and, and a lot of that comes from doing that basic research of just trying to understand exactly how things are working. And, and we've got progress in multiple different fields of cancer, so we can do things that are really general anti-cancer, like hit it with a laser, hit it with radiation. And those are getting better all the time. We have even more precise lasers and we can use um, very clever ways to just kill every single cell in that tumor. Um, and, and that can be really helpful for patients. But then we're also understanding how that patient's specific individual personal form of cancer behaves. And okay, we can start to look at which exact proteins are are present within that cancer and we can start targeting treatments that are personalized to that patient and we're getting much better at doing that and then we've got slightly more general things that are looking at how the immune system works because one of the big problems with cancer cells is cancer cells are basically your own cells gone wrong so the immune system doesn't recognize them as as something that is bad so they kind of go undetected and we've got very clever ways now of targeting the immune system specifically at the tumor cells and let your body do the work for you let your immune system kill those cells Mm. um so we're making progress in lots of different ways in understanding how so tumors grow their own blood vessels it's one of the most terrifying things about tumors for me in my mind it's one of the scariest things is that they grow out of control and they need nutrients they need to bring blood in to bring nutrients so they just grow their own blood vessels to bring stuff in and then they also break off into those blood vessels and start spreading around the body it's a really clever thing that they do and we're doing good research to understand how can we stop those blood vessels growing how can we break those blood vessels down and how can we stop just starve the tumor by not allowing it to generate these blood vessels. So we're doing loads of cool stuff. Every time something new comes up as well. So I work quite a lot in the field of nanomedicines. There's this really cool idea that we can wrap up anti-cancer drugs inside um, little bubbles made up of um, nanoparticles. Mm -hmm. And we can use that to allow the drug to get specifically to the tumor site and then use ultrasound to break up those little bubbles, release the drug, and it only affects the cells then in the tumor rather than your whole body, which gives people nasty side effects and makes people feel really poorly. Um, So we're trying to understand how we can minimize side effects for patients. And then there was this really cool research when the Zika virus first hit the news Researchers said, this is interesting. Zika virus is really, really good at getting into the brain. 
I wonder if we can use it to treat brain cancer. (laughs) (laughs) So they started developing ways that they could use the virus, deactivate the virus and and use it to treat um, brain cancer in adults because the problem with Zika virus is it affects the brains of developing children. And so we keep it away from those and we we throw it into the brains of adults who aren't going to be affected in that way and use it to target cancer cells in the brain. Someone totally was pissed when they came up with that. It must have been in the <laughs> pub one night. That they thought, I've, got, I've got a great idea. Listen, no, they'll be like, no, listen, listen. I've got this fantastic idea. <laughs> it seems to be working quite well. And this is the thing is it's, it's very often just we stumble across ideas and go, hang on, how can we relate this to this problem? Just try and connect these dots. <laughs> um God, that, that's fantastic and the nanoparticle medicines things i hadn't really come across either because obviously we've got good treatments but as you suggest sometimes they just leave you feeling grim and yeah. the, you know the systemic side effects are, are really unpleasant and if we're working towards a place where we're not necessarily looking to cure every type of cancer we're just looking to treat a patient so that their life lasts as long as their life was going to last we prolong their survival and maybe f- Often for those patients, we try and get them on a drug that works and then we monitor them. And if they relapse, then we start to put them on a different drug. But for some patients, we might get to a position where they're on medication long term for long periods of time. Yeah. Um, We need to work really hard to minimize those side effects so that 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 prolonged life isn't just miserable because you're on chemotherapy all the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, if the side effects are manageable, then there's no reason to come off it necessarily. And your quality of life is just as good. Yeah. Uh, if we can prolong patients' lives, you know, if you're diagnosed with cancer and we can treat it and we can prolong your life to as long as it was ever going to be, and we can make sure that you've got a good quality of life, that's as good as curing it. Yeah. Gosh, well, that's, um, Alice, l- let me ask a, a final thing then about scepticism. If you, you, I know you're involved with Merseyside skeptics. How would you how would you recommend people get involved with skepticism? There's lots of there's lots of the skeptic societies around the um, country yeah. as well, isn't there? So there are skeptics in the pub groups in loads of cities across the country. So um, I think there's a, a group website. We're actually not on it. The skeptics in the pub website. So if you type in skeptics in the pub, you'll find like a list of all the skeptics in the pub groups in the country. And that I've been giving this talk at groups across the country um, for a couple of years now. And so I've met a good chunk of of those groups and they're almost all brilliant. Like I've had no bad experiences so far with with skeptics in the pub groups in in the UK. It's definitely worth just, you know, seeing what groups are available in your area, Um, going along to their talks, dropping them an email to ask, you know, more about them. Um, A lot of them do kind of monthly talks that you can go to and just get to know and get involved with them. If there isn't a uh, Skeptics in the Pub group in your area, you can set one up. (laughs) Um, There are people setting up Skeptics in the Pub groups constantly. Um, So that's an option. But also there's loads of skeptical things going on online as well. So most of the Skeptics in the Pub groups are interacting online somewhere. Um, And then there's, you know, we kind of do various different bits of fun every now and then. And there's podcasts, Skeptics with a K is one of them but there's there's podcasts um there's loads of skeptical podcasts so just looking on itunes and seeing is uh is a good good bet too yeah so tell tell us um tell us a little bit more about where we can find about more about your work in particular alice and particularly skeptics um with a k 
So, yeah, we do a monthly, monthly, bi-weekly, every two weeks we do a podcast, uh, Skeptics with a K, where me and my two co-hosts, uh, Michael Marshall and Mike Hall, talk about stuff to do with skepticism. It can be all sorts of stuff. Um we try and keep it topical. So if things come up in the media where people are making bold claims about things and we talk about that, it's usually fairly lighthearted, but we touch on some more serious topics as well. Um, so that podcast is available pretty much anywhere you can get your podcasts. Um, we also have two other podcasts at the Mosaic Skeptic Society. So we've talked about one, Be Reasonable, that Marsh does, where he talks to people about um the, the views that they hold, sometimes the more extreme views that they hold. And we have a very irregular skeptical panel show um, called Incredulous, which doesn't come out very often, but it is it's brilliant when it does come out. It's very funny. Um, <laughs> it is very much a kind of comedy type show, but it is great. Um, it just doesn't come out very often. I have nothing to do with that podcast, so I can, I can say without um boasting that i think it's a great podcast um you can also find me on all of the social media um i am alice emma louise on most social media and then i've got a blog dralice.blog which is not currently very frequently updated but that will change in the not too distant future when i have a little bit more time um i think that's everything yeah no. um, i should also mm. mention um cancer research uk are great for resources infographics and stuff i definitely recommend checking those out for any information lay information about um cancer is definitely yeah. a useful place to go yeah and I'll, I'll put a link up to that article as well and all those places you mentioned um alice that's been absolutely fantastic thank you so much for taking the time thank you for having me okay well thanks for listening you can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.